Welcome to Inside America's Minds, a series of original podcasts created and hosted by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. Inside America's Minds features fascinating conversations with everyday people like you and me and their extraordinary experiences. Join us for this thought-provoking episode on Inside America's Minds. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Inside America's Minds. Today, I have Colonel George Milton. Colonel, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. Uh, it's awesome to be able to be here, Dr. Joey. Looking forward to having a great, robust conversation. Absolutely. So, Colonel, you are 30 years, over 30 years now as an Army officer, combat veteran, Thank you for your service, multiple deployments, commander in war, Army War College graduate. I'm not done. There are still more. Two four-star senior level combatant commands, Joint Forces Command and European Command, correct me at any time, senior staff officer at European Command in Stuttgart, Germany, Division Chief of the Civil Partnership Division in European Command, corroborating with Oxford University in England. You're an internationally known communicator, coach, mentor, TV co-host, and the author of Failure is Not a Problem, which we're going to talk about. Um, and you are the CEO of Failure is Not a Problem. It's the beginning of your success. Um, you've done so many incredible things in your life. And mm. yet, you know, we talked a little bit before the show started and you are so humble. And again, it, it's what a gift to have you on Inside America's Minds. So I'm going to start with you are the founder and the CEO of Failure is Not a Problem. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um... Dr. Jody, if you would, just give me a, a few minutes here to share a story with you. I think that'll connect all the, all the dots for us here. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm nursing a little, little cough. But, you know, I, I'm reminded of, um, um, uh, of a story uh, of, uh, of a person who came from a very, very impoverished environment where, uh, you know, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity for, for this person. You know, his parents were young teenagers. Uh, neither parent actually finished high school. Uh, you know, this kid started off uh, his young life uh, by, you know, failing kindergarten. He went on to fail the first grade uh, because of the, you know, the poor educational, uh, uh, you know, struggles that he actually had in every grade. I mean, he failed virtually uh, every grade thereafter, you know, according to his story. I mean, he almost didn't even graduate from high school one time. I remember his story being that uh, his counselor called him to the office one day and told him that, hey, look, you're not going to be able to graduate on time. He was literally devastated. Uh, he was supposed to be the first high school graduate in his family. You know, his mother and father had been telling, you know, family members and friends that uh, he was going to be graduating. So uh, there was obviously excitement, you know, in the family. Um, as, as he continued to talk, uh, the counselor, uh, she explained to him that uh, he was going to be short one credit hour. Therefore, would not be able to, to walk across the stage with his uh, senior class on graduation day. He was a pretty good, you know, football player and, and, and had been, help, you know, uh, uh, and, and all that high speed stuff. So he'd been helped with his grades because of that athleticism. 
uh, you know, he said that um, uh, he pleaded with his counselor to simply just, you know, hit me out one more time, man, so I can get across that stage. But uh, according to her, you know, according to him, it was just not to be. Uh, no more eligibility, none of that. So, you know, he said he was depressed, you know, believing that uh, his life was over and thinking that if he didn't graduate on time, uh, you know, how disappointed his family would be. And that his opportunity uh, to go to college as an athlete and then on to the professional football league was over. Uh, you know, he said he didn't, he didn't know what to do. Uh, he could, uh, you know, I mean, what was going to happen here? He couldn't graduate with his, uh, his class that he'd gone to school with all these four years. In order to be able to graduate, he said that he had to take a summer class. So the problem, uh, you know, with this situation is that um, uh, the counselor said, look, you have to do um, uh, th this correspondence course. So he was like, well, you know, what is that? And she says, well, you know, it's this, you know, this self-talk course that you're going to have to take. I mean, this kid was dejected, man. And um, uh, uh, so he went in and, um, uh, you know, multiple times pleading with her. And she says, well, you know, there was nothing she could actually do. So dejected, you know, feeling like a total failure, he gave oh, up. And, and oh. Yeah, I know, right? And accepted his fate. To his surprise, a couple of weeks later, the counselor called him in and she said, hey, you know what? Uh, I think I've got a way to actually, you know, help you go ahead and get the, uh, be able to graduate on time. She says, um, uh, 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 what I'm going to need you to do is to take this correspondence course. And he said that, uh, you know, according to him, he asked, uh, uh, what correspondence course? He said that he couldn't even spell correspondence at that point in time. So, you know, he certainly had no idea you know, what that entailed. You know, the counselor, you know, explained to him that it was a self-taught course, you know, that his high school, you know, would order for him. So he thought that'd be pretty easy. Uh, so he would take the course material, read through it, you know, go through it, do the practical exercises by himself, and then take the test and send it in. And if he got a passing grade on it, uh, he could actually graduate on time. Now remember, Ds and Fs and all these kinds of things along the way. So um, as the council continued explaining, you know, what the expectations were, he quickly realized there were two major challenges with this correspondence course. First, it was in hard science. It was in botany. Oh, you know, wow. Yeah, according to him, he didn't even know what that was, botany. So when the counselor explained to him that it was the study of plants, he asked her, well, who would want to do that, right? Study plants. So that was the first issue, hard science. The second issue is that it was from Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. So there he was, failing high school. And in order to graduate, he had to take a self-taught course in hard science from a university. What were the odds of passing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? The long, short story, um, you, know, you know, he took the course material barely able to read, went through the booklets and information, took the test, just turned it into the counselor, you know, a few weeks later. Uh, the counselor, uh, you know, contacted him, notified him that she had received the results. Uh, he went to her and uh, she told him he didn't pass. Oh. At least, you know, not with flying colors, he didn't. He got a D. And Fantastic! Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> consistent, right? So therefore, he, you know, was passing so he could actually graduate on time. Now, look, by, by now, you might have, have guessed and wondered, well, who the heck was this? Well, that kid was actually me, dog. That was little George. That was me. That yeah. was little George. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. You're even more amazing than what I read about or what we spoke about just briefly before the show. Mm. And you've earned the right to be influencing the lives of others. So little George growing up, where did you grow up, George? 
Yeah, I grew up in East Rural, Texas. It's about, oh, it's a little place called Jacksonville. There's a Jacksonville everywhere, right? Yeah. So this is uh, Jacksonville, Texas. It's about two hours and 15 minutes uh, east of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, actually. It's about 60 miles south of Tyler, Texas, if you've ever ever heard of uh, Tyler's very own Earl Campbell, right? Tell me so about he, mom and dad growing up. Yeah, you know, my uh, my, my parents met with it when they were, you know, very, very early on uh, in life when they were teenagers. You know, my mom was, uh, when she actually gave birth to me, she was 17 and uh, my dad was 15 and a half, you know, about to you know, turn 16 and grew up in a very, very impoverished environment, uh, you know, in the country and that, and that sort of thing. And uh, just, you know, what I didn't come from a family uh, of educators. I mean, very, very smart people, you know, from a common sense approach, mm -hmm. but there were just, you know, two you know, young teenagers uh, living in East Rural, Texas that, you know, fell in love and, and wanted to uh, start a lot together and all that sort of stuff. And one thing led to another and, you know, here I am. Uh, were was, you loved as a child? Um, it is with as much love as they knew how at that time, right? Mm. So um, interesting that you should ask that question, Doc, because, I mean, one goes through life, you know, and, and if they don't hear oftentimes that they're loved, uh, then they question that, right? Because the verbal piece is incredibly important. So for a number of years, I mean, uh, I, I dealt with that and, and, and wondered, right? So just over time, I realized that although I didn't come from a family where uh, it was voiced uh, hardly at all, I, I was 22, 23 years of old, but years of age before I ever heard either one of my parents utter the words, I love you, right? Oh my gosh, George. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, through their demonstrations of, yeah. of, of, you know, you know, going to work every day, I know providing what you know little food that we had those kinds of things we called I mean I mean they showed their love they demonstrated it in that way so uh, growing up uh, th there was uh, you know questions as to as to why you know um, uh, those words were never uttered although uh, over time I realized that uh, of course my, my parents did you know love me and I have two younger younger sisters but it wasn't something that you you heard uh, hardly ever. So he, here you are, grown up yeah. in poverty, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much. How, how were you different or how were you treated any differently when you went to school? You had mentioned that you had difficulty reading. Talk, mm. uh, talk to us a little bit about that because that represents a very large population in our country. How, how, what was that like? Yeah, you know, what's interesting about uh, my, my upbringing and my rearing because I never even knew I was poor until I went to school. Yeah. I mean, okay. we were just, you know, yeah. living day to day, and it, it was great. I mean, the, the kinds of things that I had to endure, you know, people in my neighborhood had to endure blacks, whites, uh, you know, Hispanics. There weren't very many Asians or anyone, but, it's, you know, primarily blacks, whites, and Hispanics in uh, East Rural Texas town. But we were all poor. So it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, we had the railroad tracks kind of deal, the, the poor kids on, on one side of the tracks, the, you know, well-to-do on the other side mm. of the tracks. But, but as I grew... Uh, older, uh, I realized that those folks had a little had a little bit better, although it's, man, it was like day and night, you know, when I was growing up. But as mm. you come into understanding what wealth is and what money is and these kinds of things, they didn't have a whole lot more necessarily, but they weren't nearly as impoverished as, as I. So um, just just over time, uh, I learned how to, how, how to deal with that. Your happiest childhood memory, Colonel. Wow, happiest childhood memory. <clears throat> That would probably be going hunting and fishing with my father. Really? 
Yeah. 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 So, you know, the hunting and the fishing piece were how we actually uh, supplanted ourselves and, you know, to get food and, and all that. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. Your favorite thing to do as a child? Oh, athletics. I mean, golly. Yeah. Anything involving sports. I mean, you know, primarily football. You know, growing up in Texas, uh, when I was growing up now, it may not be that way today, when I was growing up, uh, Dr. Jody, uh, if you were in Texas, man, you, you pretty much want to be a Dallas Cowboy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that was the goals and the and, and the dreams. But uh, but I was a football player, track and field guy, baseball guy, uh, in, in school and all that. So you go through school. Was there any bullying? Yeah, I mean it's um uh, uh, unfortunately you know when you are uh, uh, when you're a poor kid, man. I mean people make fun of you. I mean it happened. Mm. I mean it was what it was. The, the the good thing is that I was you know you know pretty nice sized guy. You know lean in me uh, that sort of thing. I've always been pretty stout as we would call it. You know physically fit and all of that. But but even with that, there were always kids who were much larger. And then I was one of the kids who were uh, I, I was I was you know, one of the younger kids. Hmm. So what that works to my advantage in a lot of ways. I mean, there were some, you know, you know, kids who were doing things to us that they shouldn't have been doing that we know now that we thought were normal. But um, because um, uh, those kids were older, we always, you know, also played uh, sports against those, those guys. And they were like two, three years older, right? And because they were two to three years older hmm. and I played with those guys, I was always better than the folks who were my age group. So it worked out to my advantage. What was your favorite course or, or class in school subject? <laughs> Are you kidding me, that one? <laughs> if, I, if I had to say I had one, it would be PE. Mine at the time was music, so I yeah. feel you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, physical education. Uh, Doc, you know, I, uh, I mentioned that uh, I didn't come from a family of readers. You know, I never read a book until I was... Uh, until I was a freshman in high school. I mean, I mean, you know, I've gone through, you know, comic books and that sort of thing, actually adventure books, but uh, literature and all that, never, never read a book at all uh, uh, until I was a freshman. And the only reason I read that book was because I was in English class. And, you know, as an English class, oftentimes the English teacher uh, will, will assign you a book to read. Yeah. And in this particular scenario, uh, you know, she assigned me a book and uh, I couldn't read. I mean, uh, I mean, just golly, barely could even make, you know, sense of anything other than, you know, comic books. You know how those are paraphrased off, so you can just kind of section that off, so you just get used to doing and understanding what the, what's going on through the pictures and all of that. I tend to be a very visual guy. But she comes and she says, hey, look, I need you to read this book for this assignment. A couple of weeks later, she comes back and she asked me if, I, you know, asked the whole class, but specifically in this case, me, if I'd read uh, my assignment. I had not. And, uh, you know, a couple of days later, she came back and asked if I'd written the assignment. I told her that I didn't, you know, you know, I didn't read it. So she comes to me once again, and she has this book, and she opens the book. And the book was Of Mice and Men by John oh, Steinbeck. Yes. Yeah, right? Classic. <laughs> Classic, right? So here's how she got my attention. She opens the book. And in this book, if you remember well, there are two characters in that book. One name is George. The other is, is Lenny, right? The character named George was not only named George, but he was named George Milton. And, Doc, that was the first time I'd ever seen my name in print. 
Oh my gosh. Do you remember what it felt like? Do you remember oh, the emotion? Exhilarating, man. I'm like, what? I mean, I, I felt, you know, a, a sense of importance. I felt a sense of belonging. I felt a sense of, of being, right? That I went from, and, and normally, you know, to, to get that sort of thing, it was on the football field or track, you know, uh, or playing baseball and all that. But when I saw that, I thought, what? I'm in a book? Come on. Are you kidding me? That actually began my, my love for, for reading. And wow. I mean, it, it, so I struggled through, you know, learning how to read, but I mean, I had to, you know, you know teach myself uh, and along Incredible. the Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the first thing I read. How did you get from high school to the military? What happened in between yeah. that time, George? Yeah. May I call you George, Colonel? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Please. Okay. Please. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So, uh, so finally, you know, graduated high school, and um, uh, uh, I actually was uh, recruited um, uh, by some track and field folks because the first semester, uh, even though I'd graduated, I missed uh, the, going uh, the school that followed and ended up going uh, that next spring. And um, uh, I ended up, and I'm going to give you the short version of this, Doc, but uh, so I went there and actually uh, failed out of that particular location. So I went home, worked for another semester, went fall rolled around. I actually, you know, got picked up. I went to my high school coach and say, hey, coach, I'm trying to, man, I want a football scholarship and I'm trying to, you know, you know, go to school, but folks can't afford it. So he calls a buddy of his at Southern Arkansas University in, in um, Magnolia, Arkansas. Mm. And he gives me a track and field scholarship, uh, you know, and Wonderful. football. You know? yeah, so and football? Like, yeah, football and track and field. Because, I mean, the coach knew me. Coach Cantor was his name. And he knew me. He knew his, you know, guy was an awesome football player, track and field guy, you know, 14-foot vaulter, 6'8", high jumper, 10 meters, you know, quarter meters, oh you know, got on the football field. And he actually, you know, brought me to school. So I'm uh, about after a year, year and a half of actually trying to, um, uh, you know, keep up. I took every physical education class I could, and I'd run out of those classes. But competing along the way, made All-American twice in track and field. Always. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So, but I couldn't keep up with the academics. So I actually, you know, that was uh, the uh, second school I failed out of. Before it was all said and done, I'd actually failed or dropped out of six colleges and universities. So how was your, I mean, so they're at polar opposites. Like I, I, I will tell you and everybody out there, I failed my first undergrad psychology class. Big mm -hmm. fat F. Mm -hmm. I was hanging out at the stables with the horses. <laughs> yeah. But here you are, an all-star American an athlete, and at the other end of the continuum, you're not able to do the academics. Yeah. Where did your self-confidence lie in all of that? Yeah, you know, uh, everything that uh, that I was hoping for and praying for at that time was in athletics. I mean, my, my whole dream, you know, of being able to do the kinds of things I wanted to do was in becoming a professional football player. And because I held on to that, right, that actually propelled me to be able to, to do some, some, some things I needed to do. Now, a lot of failure along the way. I mean, kindergarten, first grade, right? I mean, failed both of those. You know, I told you about all the, you know, you know miserably, you know, in high school and that kind of stuff, failed all the universities. And I actually ended up, that's how I ended up in the military because I followed out of so many colleges. And, uh, and I, I tried to get into it. When I failed out of, uh, uh, you know, out of school, I literally, that's how I ended up in the Army. So, so did, did you play pro football? No, never made it. Never ha made it. Academics. So... Did you ever make peace with that, not being able to fulfill that dream, knowing well, that you had the potential, George? You yeah, had that that's a great physical question. potential to do it. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very interesting question, right? Because there was a time in which uh, I was struggling, right? And uh, mm. I always knew that I was, I thought I was capable of actually being so, that's for sure. But um, uh, what's actually changed that was actually when I went into the military. So Talk to in, us about in, that. Oh, man. So I go into the, so bowled out of all those colleges, you know, you know, miserable failure along the way. And in the military, it's where my entire mindset changed and switched, right? How? So I go to the Army, and one of the things that you actually have to do is you have to qualify with a weapon system. Mm -hmm. So on this particular day, I go to the weapons qualification range. And I grew, as I mentioned earlier, Doc, I mean, I grew up hunting, fishing, and all of that. So I could fire weapon systems. Right? So this is not going to be uh, an issue. I was an athlete, so I could run. Uh, Push-ups or nothing, sit-ups or nothing. So the physical piece was great, too easy, right? It was the academics, right? I tried to get in the Air Force three times and failed the ASVAB three times. Could never, oh, God. Could, never, could never pass the ASVAB with a score high enough to get into the Air Force. So I eventually, you know, after time, just, you know, tried to get into the Army. I failed the, uh, the ASVAP of the Army the first time. I waited, a, you know, a while that uh, there was a minimum time I had to wait. I went back the second time. I finally got that score. And that's, you know, enlisted in the Army. So, so How did you keep going? What made yeah, you keep trying? I had because no other options. So, so many young people today you know, that I talk with, it's like they, they shut down and I'm like, you, oh, you got to keep going. But what would you tell them to, to get motivated to keep going? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in my particular case, like I had no other options in terms of, not, I mean, I mean, I come from this impoverished environment. If, had I not come into the military, I had one or two choices, uh, you know, ended up on drugs, dead or in prison. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's just kind of the way it was, or get a factory job. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. My father worked in a factory and he was, you know, decent money and these kind of things, you know, not nearly as much as enough to take mm. a family. But so those are those, those were the options. And I don't want to paint a bad picture of, of the town I grew up in. I mean, it is. It is what it is. It was what it was. So for me, there wasn't very many options other than that. So this this deal with uh, the, the military. So I'll go to the weapons qualification range. I failed the range. How I did that, the range. How, how did that heck? happen? <laughs> because the weapon systems, M16, that we use to qualify as a totally different weapon system than what I grew up with firing mm. to shoot animals to eat and these kind of things, right? So I go back to the barracks that night, and uh, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant First Class Gaither, George Gaither, big, 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 I mean, teddy bear to be quite honest. I mean, rough, rough dude. But you get him out to the side, I mean, he's a teddy bear. You know, he was in Vietnam for a couple of years and that mm. kind of stuff. You could actually tell. So lovable man, you know, professional, totally professional. So Sergeant Gaither comes to me and he sees me moping around. He says, Private, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? And I, you know, began to tell them that he's on, you know, I went out to the range today and, you know, below the range, I failed. I mean, I just thought I would, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing, thought I'd be able to qualify. And I'm just, you know, really distraught about this, you know, another failure in my life. And he says, look, son, failure is not the problem. What you do with that failure and how you respond to that failure, that's the issue. Say that that's again. Say that again, yeah. George. Yeah. Yeah. He said, you know, look, private, failure is not the problem. What do you do with that failure and how you respond to that failure? That's the issue. From that day forward, my entire mind shifted. And I started beginning to think in terms of failure is not bad because I was always told it was bad. You know, I was always told that if you fail, 
you're worthless. You have no value. No one wants to be around you. You don't, you can't be a part of the team. We only want winners. Right. So when he said what he said that I never even thought about that. I just always thought the way in which we thought is that failure is obviously always associated with negativity, not positive. Nothing. There's nothing of value that comes from that. So from that day forward, literally, it took a while to, to really under, understand all of that. But just over time, every single time that I would fail, I get a little distraught. And I remember what Sergeant Gaither said to this day. Hmm. To this day, I remembered that. So Amazing how, how our mentors are encoded in our total being, isn't it? Oh, oh it really is. Wow. Because it could have been totally different had I had a different platoon sergeant, hmm. right? Had I ended up, in, you know, in a different location with a different whatever, but it's just, you know, the universe, God, whomever, whatever you want to say, brought me to where I was, right? And what's really interesting to me, Dr. Jody, is that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter where we find ourselves, you know, at some point you're going to be given an option or an opportunity to choose. Mm. You know, the path you choose can be the total, total transformation as it was for me in terms of how your life can actually end up. How old were you when you were in the, when you started in the military? Yeah, 22. 22, a baby, really, in yeah. the grand scheme of life. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about your first deployment. Yeah, it's, um, uh, by that time, I'd had, um, uh, I'd had what, uh, it, it took me five, five and a half years just to even be able to, com you know, compete to become an officer, right? So, so I went through this Okay, process. but slow down because an officer, when you're commissioned, that requires an amount of education, doesn't that's it That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. So, so what happens here, so by the, before I became an officer, I was an enlisted guy. So I worked my way up from E1, E2, E3, E4, sergeant, staff sergeant. How did you do while that? At time, while at the same time going to school, learning in the process, right? I was working. I was a full-time soldier. Right at that time, I, I was married, and um, uh, was you know young, young kids again, that, that sort of thing. But just over time, uh, I, I would take classes uh, at nighttime. I would take classes uh, on the weekends. I would take classes, um, uh, uh, you know, after uh, duty days and that sort of thing. So when my buddies were out partying, I was in school, and, and, and folks used to ask me, "Why are you in school so much?" Right, and I said, "Well, I wanted to be an officer." I literally had had folks tell me early on, "You'll never be an officer, son. You don't have the right pedigree." You don't have any degrees. Oh my gosh. Right? Mm. So at that time, the Army says that if you can get a 110 GT score. What's GT score? Tell us. General, general technical score. Okay. So they, take, they take the ASVAB and they have all these different areas and it comes out to a general technical score. Okay. And um, uh, in order to be able to just apply to become an officer, you had to have a minimum of a 110. Hmm. When I came in the Army, my GT was 85. So it literally took me over five years of going back. To, I failed to ask them probably 10 times, y'all. Right? Incredible. But, yeah, but but I wanted to be an officer. So you so you I, had, you knew what the goal was. You oh, knew yeah. what the end Absolutely. game was and bar yes. nothing was going to stop you no matter how many times you had to do something. That's right. That's right. That's so right. what kind of work did you do in the Army while you were going to school to become an officer? What was your job during the day? Yeah, I was, uh, we called it at that time a 45 golf, a fire control systems repairman. So I was in the electronics field. Wow. So I, re so I repaired um, uh, uh, chipboards and tanks <laughs> and uh, laser range finders. Uh, that, that's a, a big weapon, shoulder fire weapon, 
that actually shoots a laser beam down uh, in the distance, kind of tell us, you know, how far that tank is downrange and that sort of thing. How did you feel like you were part of a family when you were in the army? Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. How did it change you, George? Yeah, it's um, uh, you know, uh, wow. Uh, being a part of you know, being a soldier, uh, and, and they say that you know we're a family, and that's really what it felt like. And I'd never ever, you know, I mean, I love my family, mm -hmm. but I, I but I've always felt like an outsider. If that makes sense. Right? Sure. Yeah. Because my goals were different. The things I wanted to do were different. So uh, I used to feel a little guilty about that because I wanted to, you know, be better and that sort of thing. But when I went into the army, um, uh, first of all, I didn't want to be in the army. I wanted to be a professional football player. But yep. when I got into the army, right, I, 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 there was just a whole other world that opened up to me. Right? So, and I realized that in order, when you break patterns, Doc, the world opens up to you. Say that again, George, because that's so important. And that's a message that people of all ages need to hear, especially when they need to make life changes. So say that again about breaking patterns, please. Yeah, yeah. For me, man, you know, I grew up in a systematic way where it relates to the, the poverty thing. Most folks got trapped into that. So there are certain patterns that people followed and they just kind of, that's kind of what they knew. So I, I understood um, how I understood, I'm not necessarily sure, but I understood, you know, early in life that in order to be able to get out of here, I got to do something different. Now, I didn't term it in terms of break, breaking patterns, but obviously over time, I realize now that in order for one to be able to get from where he or she is to where they want to be, there are certain patterns that you have to break. And when you break those patterns, the world opens up to you, dog. And that's what actually happened to me. And, you know, I, and I have to say that people like yourself and the people I have had the privilege of working with in, in my, my career is the ones that broke those patterns that actually had to make decisions that violated social norms or their belief systems or parental, you know, aspirations for them have, have achieved the lives that they wanted have achieved that sense of accomplishment. Is that the same for you by breaking those oh, yeah. patterns? Oh yeah, yeah, I definitely went against the grain, right? Okay. I mean, I totally went against the grain because there were certain expectations. I mean, my folks wanted me to graduate high school and mm -hmm. then you know stay in that environment, go get a you know girlfriend, have some grandkids, get a factory job, and remain there. And and for me, it wasn't about being better than anyone else. It was about being all that I could actually be. Right. Wow. And I knew that I, within me and still within me was this, 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 this thrive and this drive to like want to be something better. I know that sounds terrible, right? But no, I, no. I knew, I, I knew, I knew that, man, that, that was not the, the type of life for me, even though the, the failure, right, was the, was, the, was the foundation that I had. But once I come into the military and I talk together, I mean, I changed, right? I literally broke those patterns of seeing failure as bad and started, you know, relating to it as something very positive. And I've done that my entire career. And mom and dad and sisters, how did they feel about you? Or how do they feel about you now? Oh, now it's a lot different. At, at, at the, you know, then, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, they, you know, I guess, wow, man, I know this sounds kind of crazy, right? But uh, in some ways, they were happy for me. Mm-hmm. In some ways, they were like, well, who do you think you are? And why do you think you should? And who do yeah. you think, right? That sort of thing. So there, and, and I felt guilty about that because I felt in some ways I was leaving people that I cared about behind. But boy, I tell you, uh, Doc, one of the things I realized once I got out of that environment 
is that they too had the options and the opportunities to do some of the things that I did and chose not to. And when I really understood that, then the guilt and the feelings of that actually went away. It was no longer, you know, me feeling like, man, I'm doing so well and they're not doing really as well. Right. Although I knew mm -hmm. that they could. I mean, my sister who had an opportunity to go into the Air Force, I chose not to go into the Air Force because she had, she had got pregnant at that time. And my mom said, hey, look, you know, want you do like George? I mean, he's in the Army. He's been in the Army for a while. So I'll take care of the kid. Well, good. You get through basic training. And then you can have the baby get set up. You, you know, George will help you, you know, along the way and tell you exactly what you need to do. And she, she, she said, no, she didn't want to do that. So she chose not to break that pattern. So therefore, even to this day, she is still there, stuck in that environment. Deployment, combat. Yes. yes. First deployment, overseas? Yeah, uh, yeah. it was um, uh, Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. Talk to us. The first time out of motherland, United States? Yeah, absolutely. Well, kind of, sort of. So uh, what had actually happened here, I'd gone to um, uh, officer candidate school. Okay. And uh, after I graduated officer candidate school, you know, go to airborne training. Uh, went from airborne training, went to um, uh, my uh, officer basic course. And, so you uh, were airborne? Oh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So go to uh, every improving grounds. And uh, once I graduated my officer basic course, I got orders to Germany. Is what, Where in Germany? Uh, Schaffenberg, Germany. Schaffenberg, okay. West Germany, near the Würzburg area. Uh, it's not, not far from Frankfurt, about 35, 40 yeah. minutes. Yeah, I'm real familiar with Rhymane. Yeah, uh, Heidelberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, was fortunate enough. My, my parents were civilians working for NATO, so I grew up. Oh, wow. Uh, in at Leghorn, Camp Darby yeah. in Italy, Tuscany. Yeah, wow. So you you go there first. Yeah. So so uh, so um, I go, I'm stationed uh, in in, uh, in Schaffenberg. Yeah. And um, uh, oh, I got there. Ooh, what was it? It was um, November of '89. Uh, December of '89, we're deploying. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And, and that's your first time out of the country. Yeah. And, yeah. and what was that feeling? Because Europe is quite different it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. from where you went. Yeah, it, it really was uh, because, I mean, I never even taken a, the first time I was ever on an aircraft is when I went from, you know, Texas to Fort Knox, Kentucky, the basic training. And now, you know, you're going to get on the bird and you're going to head always overseas. So, so when I found out I was going to Germany, I mean, I was just like, whoa, that's crazy. We don't want to do that. Right. But um, uh, so it was very anxious, you know, uh, you know, I, I mean, a little excited, but I was really nervous about that because I didn't know it was like that people in the world. Right. And in fact, I told my mom, this is the kind of family we come from. Doc. She says, uh, I told my mother that I was going to Germany and uh, she said, what? Going to Germany? Well, what are you going to do there? <laughs> right. And then she says, and this is right. Right. And I said, well, you know, that's what my job is going to be. This is what the army wants want me to do and that sort of thing. And she said, well, how long is it going to take you to drive her? Oh, God bless you. <laughs> what do you drive? My home up now. Look, I said, look, if I drive, I have to be in a sub. Right? <laughs> so, so no concept. That, I mean, that's kind of, but that's kind of how we grew up, right? And I don't, I don't speak in that vernacular anymore, but in order to, and that was another issue. I was teaching this class one time and I was, I mean, just this, this old hillbilly boy from, from country and that kind of stuff. And he's doing his thing. And after I finished my class, you know, the sergeant comes up to me and he says, Sergeant Milton, that was, you know, you had great 
you know, graphics, you know, your visual aids, man, fantastic. But no one understood anything you've said, right? So another failure, right? Oh. So here's what he did is instead of taking that in the wrong sort of way, I just said, well, well, you know, okay. I taught a class. Everybody was hyped. They didn't understand anything I said. So I failed. So what do I do with that? What, what would Gaither say? You have to respond to it somehow, man. So what I, you know how I responded? I went out and got speech classes. Tell me why you did that. Yeah, because look, in order to... Um, now, I wanted to be an officer from when I was a private in basic training. Mm. So now I'm a sergeant, right? So in my mind, that in order for me to become an officer, there's a certain way one has to speak. Yeah, gosh. So if they're telling me that as a sergeant, this is not how you, right? So I knew that in order for me to become an officer, in my mind, my call it, you know, juvenile way of thinking, but my process, uh, you know, in terms of how I thought is that if he is saying this about me as a sergeant, in order for me to become an officer, I'm not going to be able to talk like this. Or be able to, I mean, up until that point, it sounded very normal to me. That's how I grew up. And it's not that it's abnormal, but that was my vernacular. So I knew that if it's not working as an NCO, there's no way it's going to work as an officer. Plus, when I taught, when I had classes that I had to give, I wanted to make sure that the soldiers understood what I was saying, because this is life and death kind of stuff, right? Huh. So there was a twofold objective here. One was to make sure that I, when I taught, and I gave my classes that the soldiers understood understanding what I was saying. But while at the same time, I wanted to make sure that by the time I became an officer, man, that I was actually, you know, sounded. The Incredible, your drive. But at any point, George, did you feel you were losing your identity? No. Or just, no. okay, good. I, I took on a new identity, right? Okay. But, you know, that's when I talk about failure, you know, oftentimes, I guess, um, I'll personalize this here, is oftentimes, when I was uh, failing, right, um, if I, how do I say this here? Um, if we change directions, that's not necessarily failure, right, Doc? See, throughout my life with all the failure, when I failed, I had to do something else. Well, I just thought, well, gosh, that's just failing. No, 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 no. Those are experiences pushing me in a different direction. So the failure, which are merely experiences, even Uncle Wimpy says, you know, failure is it's, it's, it's merely an experience. So those experiences pushed me in a different direction. It wasn't that I was failing at all. And in fact, here's what I come to believe. Failure doesn't even really exist. It really and truly doesn't. And I say that, Doc, because mm. of this, is that when we're kids, here's what we, here's what I did, here's what other folks I talked to, just to kind of, you know, get some, some, some background, kind of balance this out. But I always ask folks, and no one has ever told me this is not the case for them. I bet y'all talked to 100, 200 people. I says, when we're children, we're getting, if we're given a task or a challenge of some sort that we take upon ourselves, we do one or two things with that. We either figure it out or we just kind of move on to something else. Hmm. As children, we never ever think about it being failure until we're what? Told that it's failure. That's right. That's never What's a concept that? for us. It's never a concept. Never do we even think about failure being failure until we're actually taught, trained, coached, mentored. You're a failure this. You're worthless that. You're not of value. Of course we're of value. You talk to any major player in the world today, sports, business, military, education, right? I've read multiple times where Bill Gates, right? Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey said that they learn way more from their failures than they ever did from their successes. I would agree with that 110%. Yeah, yeah. So. I want to go back 
Yeah. I'm going to redirect you now back yeah. to the deployment. I want to talk about what that felt like yeah. when you yeah. landed where you did, uh, because I, I've dealt with a, a lot of vets who yeah. were part of Desert Storm yeah. Shield. God bless all of you, yeah. and then some. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, that that was um, that was good and bad. Um, I um, yeah, look, I, look, I, I've always been a, a motivated kind of guy. Uh, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's just that's part of my 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 nature, if you will. But uh, uh, you know, you get the call to go to war, uh, be your family. I mean, dude, let me tell you something. I'm fired up, right? I'm a former staff sergeant. And I'm now a lieutenant. I have a platoon. I have folks that are depending on me. So I am wired tight, right? I mean, it was absolutely exciting to, to actually go and to, to be able to do that. Now, interesting, uh, you know, we talk about win, 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 win all the time. Uh, we don't talk about oftentimes, unfortunately, uh, uh, the repercussions of what war actually brings on. Yes. So um, I've had to be resilient since I was about five, six years of age. I just how you, I mean, you had to survive on your own. I mean, I had to watch out for my two sisters while my parents were out either partying or trying to find, you know, we had to try to figure out how to find food because it just wasn't around. So resiliency was something in which I learned at a very, very, very early age. So there was some stuff that, I mean, you, you go through in, in uh, you know, the combat zone that uh, if you were not, uh, resilient not that it doesn't impact you i mean you have to figure out how to deal with it in, in certain ways and even in a system whereby uh it, there's not all there was not always the resources to be able to deal with certain things that people my meaning after combat but because of my resiliency i mean it, it helped it didn't totally absolve me from a lot of the stuff that uh, was actually happening out there but it was it was a great time it was a fun time i mean i learned a lot uh you know we actually was in a I mean, actual combat, you know, it wasn't like yeah. uh, just, a, just a simple deployment. I mean, it was actual, you know, force on force combat and units actually served in and that sort of thing. So, so that was, um, um, I mean, that was a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of pride, a lot of uh, um, fun times, a lot of tough times too, right? Because when you see soldiers that you're leading, uh, you know, uh, you know, in conditions by which we saw some of these folks, well, it's, it's, it's uh, very humbling in a lot of ways, very humbling. George, you said that you're very visual. And when I, when I talk to soldiers, the memory, especially with regards to um, the post-traumatic stress or, you know, the, um, what they bring back, was your memory more visual, auditory, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. olfactory? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, very visual. I mean, not only were there visual, um, those auditory kinds of things. Or, yeah, I mean, it's just so, yeah, I, I tend to be um, someone who, um, um, if, I, if I involve myself in anything, it's 110%, 110%. So um, uh, uh, it, um, I, I don't know, there are things that uh, you'd like to forget, right? But, um, uh, you can't always uh, forget those things. And if you can't always forget those things, there's some way you have to, have to figure out how to, how to deal with that. The problem, unfortunately, uh, Don, is that I grew up in an army whereby if you went to behavioral health, 
we called it mental health at that point in time. Right. If, yeah. if you even thought about going there, it just wasn't looked upon very favorably, right? So we have people within the military today, and I'm talking at most senior levels, that if they yes. were really honest with themselves, they would be seeking out treatment for PTSD because they have it, right? But, but you know, un unfortunately, um, there was this stigma that was associated with it. And uh, man, it's just, it's, and, and folks can deny what they want to, I'm going to tell you now, that was stigma associated with it. And if you even thought about going, then, I mean, it was just, I mean, there was no full faith and confidence in the people because we ourselves didn't know how to, how to deal with that. Look at Vietnam, right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Shell shocks, what they call it, right? Yeah. But so we had people who didn't really understand how to, you know, mentally help folks who experienced a lot of those things along the way. Even at that point in time in my life where it relates to, you know, being in war and that sort of thing, we still, I mean, even to this day, we still, there's stigma associated with it, right? When I was talking to some folks and they were talking about they couldn't accomplish certain things because they were afraid of failing. I thought about, I mean, I tell you, I thought about failing a lot, Doc, in terms of, you know, how we, you know, process that one word and how it yeah. can change our lives if we do it in a positive way as opposed to negative, right? But when people say they are, fearful of failing. Oh, I'm afraid to fail. I don't think that. I don't, I don't think that. I don't believe that anymore, right? Here's what I believe. When I look at failure, and when people say they're afraid of failing, I don't believe that they're afraid of failing because I asked them, did you know that you were going to fail at some point? Yeah. So you knew that there was going to be an experience of some sort that you didn't actually obtain your goals or reach those heights. Yeah. So that's what people say that that's what failing is. Those are literally experiences, right? So I don't think it's really they're afraid of failing, I believe that they're afraid of the stigma associated with the failure. Does that make sense? I, I think you're right. And when you're talking about what the, the men and women experience in combat, something changes. And it's often, it's similar to the changes that happen to individuals with most kinds of trauma, the brain changes, how we interact and navigate life changes. But what specifically during war combat yeah. changes in, in your best way of, of teaching us? What, what changes that causes a life forever to be different? And then to make the choice to continue or stay where you are in that thought or emotion. And I know this yeah. is a very, um, I'm watching your vis, your, your, your respirations. And um, if I'm crossing a line, Colonel, just please let me know because this is such a delicate topic, but it's so under addressed. So what, what happens to make you change once you've seen that side of life? Yeah, look, I mean, I told you I grew up hunting and fishing and all that high speed stuff. Uh, but I, but the, the one thing that I learned, no, I mean, you talk about life and, you know, how, how wonderful it is and how precious it is. But let me tell you something. Um, years ago, after that first experience in combat, since then, I've never hunted again. Mm. You know, life becomes... Life becomes very, very, uh, very precious. Does that make sense? Yes. So, um, and, and it's, look, if the Army called me today and says, look, we're going to give you a brigade, you're going to go out there, do, uh, I'm souping up. 
because that's what I've taken an oath to do, right? But I assure you, the way in which I saw combat then versus deployment into combat after that were totally different. I went into my first war, right, with this killmonger sort of mindset. I mean, I just, hey, it is what it is. Uh, that's the, the, the opposition. That's the enemy. That's the training, right? Uh, you're an athlete. So, you know, for me, it was no different than a football game. The persons with the most people on the battlefield that are alive are the ones that win. And you're younger, too. Oh, you better believe it. And when you get the, the, the older you become, that sort of nonsense goes away in terms of now we need some of that. I, I get that and I understand that. And, there, and I don't want to, you know, question how, you know, I was taught how we teach today. But it forever impacts your life. And for me, uh, I, I tell you, every man, let me tell you, Doc, every single life, to include the enemy, lives are very precious. That's Say that why again, I, Colonel, yeah. even the enemy, <laughs> lives are precious. Say that again. Absolutely. Every single person, whether they're friendly or foe, their lives are very, very precious. I went into war thinking, you know, kill everything in sight, right? And let's not negotiate until after the fact. Well, here's the way I would rather do it. I would rather negotiate until the cows came home. Negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. If we can't get to a point to where the leaders have convinced the other side to give up peacefully and negotiate, then you go back to where the ones with the most bodies on the field alive are the winners. And I'm going to give 110%. If I'm leading men and women within the confines of the United States of America to any engagement, foreign or domestic, I am doing what it's going to take to actually accomplish the mission whatever that mission absolutely is. Of course, it's going to be done within the legal limits of the law, right? It's going to be humanely decent. It's going to be with kind and graciousness, right? We're not going to just kill folks mm -hmm. just for the sake of doing so. That's not what we do. That's not what we're taught. It's, it's, it just isn't. Life is very precious. No one hates a war, Doc, more than a soldier, airman, coast guardsman, mm -hmm. sailor, right? No one hates those more than soldiers. The insurgents, George, the insurgents on January 6th of this yeah. year, 2021, your thoughts, your feelings. Yeah, look, I, I, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I grew up, you know, growing up in East rural Texas, look, I grew up with people with that same mindset. Doc. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's not, I yeah. mean, folks who hate the government and that kind of stuff. I mean, I grew up in East rural Texas. I mean, you know, Texas, we, we grew up in one of those, well, we got Texas history, man. We we're taught to be independent. We we're taught to be those folks who have very little to do with the government at all. And that's just kind of how it's raised. Uh, so I understand the mindset in terms of uh, a lot of those. I understand the mindset in terms of them, you know, hating the government, so to speak. I mean, guys, come on now. Hold on. So do I agree with that? Absolutely not. That was totally, totally, totally anti-American. There's nothing American about that at all. That is not something that people within democratized systems are supposed to be doing. I understand what their frustrations were. Right. Most folks don't trust our government to do the right thing, unfortunately. I mean, it's gotten to a point now where, you know, people, you know, believe that, gosh, man, the only way to, you know, have the type of government we want is to go take the government back. But people have been saying that for decades. Mm. So I think that what happened here is a lot of those folks who had been saying that for decades saw an opportunity. And they took advantage of the opportunity. And that's just something that should have never happened, in my view. It was devastating. We need peace. How many deployments? You had multiple deployments. How many did you have total? Yeah, total of five times in combat. 
Five. Wow. Oh my God. The last wow. the last two times is you ever heard the name uh Mad Dog Mattis? No. General Mattis? Yeah, General Mattis was uh he's the former Secretary of Defense. When he was the he was the commanding general of Joint Forces Command, I actually deployed into Afghanistan twice for him. I so, saw the the picture yeah. on your website. Was it with an Afghani girl? Was it Afghani? Well, well she was that was uh, she was from Ukraine. Oh, Ukraine. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on now in the Ukraine. Yeah. So when Crimea came in, I had a had a mission to go down and do some stuff in the Ukraine. So where were your combat locations? Yeah, uh, it was uh, Iraq. Okay. Right? And uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan? Uh, uh, the part of the, the Kuwait movement. Uh-huh. Right? And over, a little bit over in Saudi Arabia also. How did your life change? As a result, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, there. Um, uh, golly, that's a that's a that's a big question, Doc. It is. <laughs> right? It is. That's, yeah, that's. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I love the, I love the military, man. I mean, I definitely love the army, but I love the military. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today, uh, if it were not for the military. And 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 within that, there's always good and bad, right? But there was always more good, Doc. Even in combat, you know, see, one of the things I've, you know, I've, I've commanded in combat. So, and one of the things I used mm -hmm. to teach soldiers right. was this. Even in war, there's dignity, right? Mm. See, it doesn't always have to be about the killmongers. You know, even in war, there's dignity. And most soldiers absolutely understand that, accept and embrace that. So it's this duality that we have to deal with. How are we able to deal with that? You learn how to deal with that as you grow, you gain experience, you gain understanding, you have multiple deployments, right? You have different experiences in each one of those deployments. What kept calling you back though? Why, uh, you know, because the army. You, the, the <laughs> well, but I mean, you, you, you talk about when I asked you initially about your first deployment, yeah. you changed. That was obviously, yeah. you know, you're, there was a, there was yeah. an emotional, yeah. the past was the present. Yeah. And I know many men and women that keep going back, not just because they're called back, but because they volunteer. Or, so did I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why? Yeah. What, what is that look, calling? What is look, that? I know this sounds selfish, right? I know it sounds very selfish, but there is no higher calling than serving uh, in one's nation in uniform. Right. So that sense of belonging, obviously, the sense of being able to teach, you know, those who are coming after me, the kinds of things that I wanted to do. One of the greatest jobs, uh, multiple times, but one of the greatest jobs I've ever had was commanding soldiers in combat. I mean, Doc, I mean, there's, wow. I, mean I, I can't tell you the exhilaration, the pride, the patriotism, right, of actually being able to be the person that's responsible for taking you know, our men and women into combat, knowing that I had the ability to get everybody there and back, right? Wasn't always easy, but man, it's just it's just the, the honor of actually being able to serve, yeah. you know, in, in combat. And, and I, I bet you could empathize with their excitement and their oh, yeah, fear absolutely. at the same time. Absolutely. <sighs> so yeah. now I, I want to, and this is all going to come full circle with your failure is success. This is all <laughs> going to come full circle but so in love, you mentioned yeah. that you were married and yeah. I know 
with my experience with many veterans that and active military, that relationships tend to be challenged significantly when men and women return back from combat. So you were married. Tell us if you're comfortable a little bit about your first love and, and then what happened. Yeah, there, I mean, I mean, there was um, uh, you had these. Uh, it, it, this is really interesting, right? Because she was from a, uh, also you know, this poor family. See, some were reasonably well to to do the new family, uh, by my standards uh, for sure. And um, uh, but the, the challenge is that I was never ever given the tools to be a husband, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I just, I mean, all the images that I saw, all the examples I saw. Were, uh, I mean, the environment I grew up in, uh, there were drugs, there was uh, alcoholism in, on both sides of the family, right? I mean, more on my father's okay. side than my mom's, but so I saw that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, uh, to this day, I mean, I've never, I've never even, uh, I mean, beer, uh, I, I tried drinking beer one time and just didn't like the taste. Uh, I never even drank until I was, gosh, man, 20s, 30s, maybe, right? Mm. And I only did that, you know, because I was out in, you know, you know, trying to do the social thing. So even now, I don't, I don't do a lot of drinking. I mean, I'll drink a glass of wine at a dinner or something like that if I'm invited to somebody's home. But um, so, so yeah, just uh, you know, uh, real, real rough, uh, if you will, because I didn't know how to be a father, didn't know how to be a husband. Uh, now you, you take that, you go to war, and uh, I knew something wasn't right when I came back. Right now, I didn't know what was going on because you just you don't know, and then you can't. If you, if you talk to people about trying to go get help, then uh, yeah. that's not a good thing. So now you, you come and some of those issues that you were dealing with before you left because of your immaturity and your, uh, you're not understanding what all these things are. Now it, it's compounded by some of the other things that you've actually experienced in combat and these kinds of things, right? So just over, uh, you know, time and all of that, you know, the inadequacies of, 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 of having that foundation. And, and marriage is not perfect by any stretch, no matter what environment you come from. Mm-hmm. But some start at a less of a deficit than others, right? If you have uh, example, you know, some decent examples, but in my case, I didn't, I just didn't see any of that at all. And uh, so I did the, 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 you know, the things that I, that I saw, you know, you kind of demonstrate those and, and that kind of thing. Now you come back and now you're frustrated with not only, um, you know, trying to figure out how to be a good husband and father. Now you have all this other stuff that you experienced that you're trying to deal with, and it just compounded a lot. How old were you when you got married, George? Uh, yeah, 22. Tw- you were 22 then, and <laughs> yeah. children? Yeah, we had, um, uh, we ultimately had, <coughs> we were married for about nine years. So over that nine-year period of time, we had, we had four kids. So when I went okay. into the Army, uh, we had, um, uh, one, of the, one of the major reasons I went into the Army is because, uh, I had a you know young wife and, and uh, a daughter that was about to be born and that sort of thing. That must have been hard too. Oh yeah, yeah. And man. and for your wife too, while you yeah, were yeah. deployed and yeah, it's it's hard on the family. Yeah, I mean, extremely. Yes, ma'am. And so that marriage lasted nine years, and and then what? Were you able to have a relationship following yeah, your military? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, um, I, I guess, um. One of the things that we oftentimes do is, and I don't want to blame the military, right, for any failures that I've ever had or relationship or, or otherwise, because most of my experiences with the military, have, uh, even though there's been a lot of failure, right, but by the time I've gotten to the point where I'm failing in the military, I, I changed my mindset to see failure as positive, not negative. So most okay. of my experiences with the military 
uh, to be quite honest, uh, Doc, have all it been positive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there, there's never been, uh, I mean, it, it hasn't always been uh, sweetly clean and, and all of that in terms of, yeah, you got a perfect career. No, there were people who didn't like me for places, you know, how I grew up, how I look, right? There mm-hmm. were folks who didn't like me because, uh, I, I thank God, you know, my athleticism, <clears throat> the motivation that I had, I was just always high energy. So most of my bosses really, really liked me. A lot of my peers didn't like that a lot because if they weren't naturally motivated, right? And, and remember, I had enlisted time. So I had the enlisted time behind me, I had the athleticism behind me, you know, very, very motivated, right? So a country boy, so I could figure things out that wasn't necessarily in manuals and all of that. So I had to do mm-hmm. a lot of catching up. And I mean, I caught up, you know, it took me a while to get caught up and, and I eventually did. Return to the private sector. Has yeah. it been difficult? Um, not nearly as much as I thought it would be. Okay. Um, it, um, I mean, I still love, uh, you know, soldiering and all of that, but I tell you what I did is my son is now second lieutenant in the army. So he's, is I, he? I, I, yeah, how many, I, I how many children do you have, George? You have a total of eight, if you count the first marriage and the second marriage. Okay, yeah. So you've been married twice and you have eight children. Yes. And your son is in the military. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, uh, I wanted this kid to go to West Point, right? Because I wanted him to do something (laughs) even better and greater than I. Be careful. You're sounding like your dad. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? But um, uh, but, uh, I wanted him to go there. So I took him to uh, Army-Navy games, right? And he Mm -hmm. comes to me and he says, hey, dad, look, uh, I want a normal college life, man. I don't want to go to West Point. So, but, <laughs> excuse me. He's in the Army now, but there was a time in which I made it very, very clear to Jacob that, um, dude, if you're going in the Army, that's on you. If you don't go into the Army, as long as you, you know, my kids have been raised with the mindset that they are to be an asset to our nation and not a liability. No matter Say what. Say that they again. They are to be an asset to our nation. And not a liability. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So my, I mean, Sarah, my oldest, uh, uh, and, and I've been a single father for, gosh, man, for quite, quite, quite a while. You're a second. single dad now? Or? Yeah, yeah I, raised, I raised the, uh, the second group. Oh, my gosh, the challenges that you, you get through, you power through. You, you, you do. And, and both of the, you know, both of the situations, the, the, the women that um, uh, I, I married, they were, they were really uh, decent folks. I mean, they weren't, you know, evil women at all and that kind of stuff. But the uh, you know, first one was just, 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 just didn't know. The second one you know, was just. You know, know. It's, it's not always a good fit. And sometimes yeah, it starts right. as a good fit and it it's, changes. And, and that's life. I, I forget who said life is what happens when we make other plans. Yeah, so yeah. I had, so I have some other questions for you. Yeah, and then I yeah. want to talk about your book. I want to talk about your website. Oh, thank you. Do you think there will always be war in the world? Yes. So here's the, here's the deal, right? Um, I was, this is interesting, right? I was talking to someone just today about this very topic. Hmm. You, we talked about me being in war for the first time. I, re, I grew up in a you know a conservative you know Christian state, uh, even more so within our community. What a lot of folks don't realize is black people are very very conservative, even though you know it doesn't appear to be that way. But also, I mean, especially when it comes to you know certain things. But so I'm talking to this person today, uh, uh, Dr. Jody, and I said uh, we were talking about religion and these kind of things in church and all of that. And I said, you know what, the first time I went to war, I had an interesting experience because going up as a Christian guy, right, I was always told that Christianity is the only way to salvation. 
So, uh, so you know, you know, during that time, you know, we're, we're prophesying Psalms 91. God's going to give us the. I mean, come on, man. He's going to be there to protect us. He's going to give us. You know, he's going to take our enemies. He's going to put us over all that high speed stuff. So I'm going there, and I get to combat. And what was interesting to me was this: is the same mantras that I had from a Christian standpoint. The enemy had his from their perspective, from a religious standpoint. Yeah. And, and rightfully so. So I, I, I tell you, I remember literally turning to God and, and saying this, hey, wait a minute. Who's right here? Are we as Christians, the good guys, and they're the bad guys? Or are they the bad guys? I mean, the good guys, we're the bad I mean, how does this work out? Whose side are you on, God? I mean, come on, right? Here's what I realized. And here's what was given to me, right? Church speak. What was given to me was this, is that God says, I'm not on either side. Hmm. You guys are in combat and in war because of the choices that men made, not something I sanctioned. So I'm not on either side here, no matter how many prayers you lift up. It's very you because of the choices Church. you made. I, I interrupted you and I apologize. That is so powerful. Can you repeat that, please? Yeah, yes, yes. Very simply, you know, I'm not on either side. You're in combat. You're in war because of the choices that men make, not something I sanctioned. No matter how much we try to sell it that way, right? Now, I'm not saying that our faith is not important to us. Of course it should be. It was to me also. And it got me through a lot of difficult times in multiple combat zones. But too often, everybody sanctions God by giving them the, right, power or God has given them the order, if you will, to use a military vernacular, to go and fight these wars. What's really true about that is for whatever the reasons, you know, we're in combat because of the choices that men make. And because of the choices that men make, right, and women too, let me, let's give credit what creditors do. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. That's why there will always be wars, man. How about in our country, in our United States, do you think we are at war with each other? Um, see, now we have to define on we have to define what war is, mm -hmm. right? What right? better we, person than you to define it? <laughs> yeah, if, if we're looking at it from a combative standpoint where it relates to force on force, uh, I could make a, an argument for militarily speaking, this is not a military type war, but there is warring kinds of things that are happening to us, right? People's mindsets, uh, the verbiage that we actually use. Uh, the guy, the disjointedness, mm -hmm. the divisiveness, right? These are the same kinds of things that happens within combat zones. So there, you know, some people, and I hate when people say, oh, I feel like I was in a combat zone. I feel like I was in a war. If you haven't really physically been in a war, then I'm, I don't know if that's the right terminology that one should actually use. Are there certain things that you're doing that could have been utilized in war and things that could have happened? Yeah, absolutely. But are we in a you know, force on force war, uh, from my perspective, in terms of how bad it could be, uh, not yet, right? And I use the word yet, because who knows what's going to happen if we keep going down this road, because there are certain folks who would love, or they, they say they want a civil war. Here's what war has taught me, you know, talk is cheap, right? You can say you want a war, mm -hmm. because most of us wanted war until we got in the war, and then we realized, what were we thinking? Hmm. Right? So th this is why it, it, it's totally important. One of the things that's, that's happening, right, there's multiple failures in our nation right now, whether it be in the government, whether it be in uh, local government, the federal government, big business, 
right? The educational assistance, all, all of these power places whereby the, the power base actually is, there's tons of failure. The issue for me is not the failure in and of itself, Dr. Jim. The issue is how we're going to respond to these failures. Because right now we need leadership. Someone asked me one time, um, why do we have so many books on leadership? And my answer hmm. to them was simply this, because we need leadership. Wow. <laughs> right? So that's what's actually going on. I mean, we, we've got to look at this nation specifically. We've got to look at it from uh, a different perspective, if you will. So as far as I'm concerned, the government has a certain amount of blame. They really and truly do. The government has lots of blame here. But I ultimately blame the citizens. Because it's the citizenry that allows for the kinds of things that are going on to go on at the end of the mm. day. Right? If we don't agree with a lot of the things that's actually happening within our governmental system, then we have the opportunity to change that. Even though people, you know, feel as though they're powerless, that's not really true. If they would get rid of the divisiveness, come together and understand what the Constitution says, whether people love to bother people, right? Then if we pull together, they say, look at here, the guys, this is really about us. You could do one thing, Dr. Joe, that would literally transform the way in which we govern in this country. This one simple thing that people either are oblivious to or just have no, you know, um, no interest in, and it's called term limits. Term limits. Okay, talk a little more about yeah. that, please. Yeah, if, look, the president of the United States, some would argue the most powerful person on the planet, right? Certainly the most powerful person within the confines of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Only gets eight years. That's it. If the president can only have eight, and he's the most powerful person either on the planet or in the country, why does everybody else get 20 and 30 and 40 years of, of time within the offices? Yeah. So the people themselves, if they want change to happen, they've got to be a part of that change. They can't keep going along, go along just to get along because it, you know, fits a need that you have. Because if you're doing that sort of thing, then not only are you failing yourself, you're failing our nation at the end of the day. So, so if we enacted term limits, guys, you know what? You're only going to get eight years in this office. And for those folks who say, but yeah, you know, we have all this, you know, these folks with all the, you know, the, the, the information, all the experience and all. No, 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 no. Sometimes you need to change direction, Doc. Doesn't mean it's failure, but sometimes we need to change direction, and changing direction is a good thing. Breaking uh, the patterns, like you said at the onset. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to ask you to define peace. Peace. Woo! Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can define peace, man. That's yeah. Peace. Peace for me personally would be, um, as an American, mm -hmm. peace for me would be. Uh, for me to be able to obtain and achieve the goals that I have set for myself and my family without harming anyone in the process of obtaining that. How about for America? How would you define peace? Peace for the United States of America. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Let me, let me see if I can explain this in an illustration real quickly. Okay. Um, Colin Kaepernick. You know that name? You took I'm the knee, familiar. the 49ers player, right? <laughs> you taking the knee, <laughs> right? 
George, I'm going to embarrass myself, but no. what I don't, and I don't care. I am That's who it. I am. No, it's okay. Yeah, and I don't mean to embarrass you, Doc. I'm still thinking, of, no, no, I'm, listen, I'm all, I'm an open book. I'm still thinking a mad dog. So, okay, so go ahead. So let's do, and I'll, I'll try to do the abbreviated piece of this, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this in, uh, in a blog I have on my website, but, okay. you know, I mean, Colin Kaepernick, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who saw yeah, him. Yeah, I, I am familiar with him. Yes, ma'am. As, as a very bad dude, right? Very bad guy. So, look, I am someone that uh, who uh, revels the, uh, you know, when it comes to the flag. I mean, dude, you know, national anthem is playing. You got to reverence, right? I mean, uh, that's just something that I think you should do. Do you have to do it? No, you don't have to. But that's something that you should want to do, right? If you are a proud American and those kind of things, if you mm -hmm. see that. So, in this particular case, you know, people got it a little bit twisted. You know, in terms of what he was actually protesting. Number one, let's be really honest about that. Uh, number two. Is, is, is this, is that, you know, the, the United States of America says that uh, we have the First Amendment, right? So there are certain ways in which one can actually protest. I don't even have to agree with how he protested. He was not doing something illegal or breaking the law, right? So, in fact, initially he sat on the bench. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a little heartburn with that. I mean, dude, I mean, come on, man. I mean, well, you're you an athlete and a military and an right. American, so. You know how many times I stood up to the national anthem as an athlete and a soldier? So I got a little issue with that. Don't No, we don't sit. If you want to sit, then stay inside the building, right? That's one way to protest also. He chose to come outside, which is well within his rights, though. So I'm okay with that. Now, he had a sergeant, a retired staff sergeant, right, who was a football player who went to him and says, hey, look, instead of actually sitting on a bench, Colin, why don't you take a knee? Let me tell you something about taking knees, Doc. When we're in combat, and one of our soldiers fall on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we do to revere that person, we all take a knee out of reverence wow. for that individual. Out of reverence for that person. Touching. Right? So taking a knee, I get chills now. Taking a knee mm -hmm. is a way to, number one, to say, look, I'm going to, you know, give reverence to, because this staff sergeant who's a military member said that, hey, look, you know, this, we would be more respectful if you were doing this as opposed to sitting. Sitting is totally disrespectful for most people. So taking a knee, right, is in no way, in my world, disrespectful. It is a huge sign of respect. Whether we agree with it or not is a whole nother issue. When we can get to a point to where we allow for people such as Colin Kaepernick to take a knee, when the national anthem is playing, whether we agree with it or not, if he's well within his rights to do so, when we get to a point to where we can respect that, whether we agree with it or not, then we're well on our way to a peaceful place to be able to, be able to live, right? So we've got to review. We can't only say that we, we acknowledge and we respect your first amendment, right? But at the same time, denying you that right. So we've world really got- World peace, world peace. Yeah, you'll you'll never get there. It's just it's just it's just. I mean, even peace in our own country is going to be a stretch. But world peace, yeah, that's um, uh, uh, Doc. I tell you, from where I've been, from what I've done, because of uh, the different, and this is this will be a long topic here, but because of the different types of uh, people who are in those other places, if you will, right? And we're not a perfect country by any stretch, but you have those uh, those autocratic countries that no matter what, you know, they're just they're just never going to buy into a democracy. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're challenged right now you know, to prove to those places that democracies actually work. 
that a democratized nation is something that they want to be a part of when we behave in the way in which we are behaving. So right. it's really unfortunate that we are what we are today based upon you know certain ideologies, certain political uh, issues, certain financial issues and that sort of thing. It, it, it's just so heart wrenching for me being a soldier and, and, and being in combat and seeing how good you know we could be and a lot of the things that we've actually done. That we that, the fact that you have a, a single person on the planet that has to go to bed hungry at night is just unacceptable to me. It's just, I mean, because I know just from being in the military, I've seen the great things that we've done, mm -hmm. how we've gone in and stood up, you know, communities and that sort of thing and supported those communities and hope of them, you know, supporting themselves. But uh, we, we have a lot that we have to do. You know, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, you know, who served as a, you know, general officer, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this guy was, you know, was, 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 was instrumental in a lot of great things that went on, not only in our country, but in other nations as well. And he said this, and I don't mean to be to, to be searching about it, but it's just a fact of nation. He says that beware of the military industrial complex, right? And this is a guy who actually served in the military. Wow. Because war is big business at the end of the day. I mean, it is what it is. Hmm. So we have to be able to, to, to remember that there's there's got to be balance, right? There's got to be balance. Only go to war when it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, you, you have to ask yourself, how do you define what's necessary? <laughs> yeah, define what's necessary. Right? How do you feel about withdrawing our troops right now since that that is under discussion yeah, in yeah, process? Well, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, 20 years ago, you know, people were asked, why are you going to war? Now, I didn't, this was not my answer. I'd been to war multiple times before this accident. Mm -hmm. But people were saying, well, why do, you, why, why do you want to go to war? And I heard people say, well, I'm going to war so my kid and my son won't have to go. And I'm like, dude, please, stop. There's always been, been wars. There's always be wars. So if that's why you're going, that, that can't be the reason because we're going to have more wars. And now we got people like him and myself whose sons are in the military, daughters about to go in the military, and right, and that kind of thing. So um, it's going to always have war, unfortunately, because, you know, that's just kind of the way people – operate they don't have to but sometimes people are conditioned right and they're conditioned to believe that you have to well do you really if it comes down to a choice hmm. you can either choose to go or not to go right but there are other different dynamics i don't make it sound like it's, it's as simple as it is but it's not nearly as complex as people try to make it be either though. It, it's also what are your what is your perspective on the draft i mean we we no longer yeah. have it but we yeah. we had it i you know, what, what is your perspective? My dad yeah. was a product of the Korean War, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so should we be pulling out of Afghanistan right now? Well, at some point you got to come home, mm. right? The issue is when, all right? I mean, so should we be leaving now? Well, if we want to leave it now, we'd be leaving at some other point in time. So some would make the argument we should have left 10 years ago, right? Some is going to make the argument we shouldn't leave until, well, there is no place on the planet where we've gone into war and we don't have a remnant of soldiers that are still there now. Right. I, yeah. I, wow. So, I mean, right? So think long and hard before you go to begin with. Mm -hmm. That's where it all begins. That's where the negotiation piece. So, but the draft, look, I don't know if I'd call it a draft necessarily because, you know, most countries would consider their country the greatest country on the planet. I consider the United States of America the greatest country on the planet. There are a lot of things that we don't do as well as we should, but, but let me tell you something here. The United States of America is, is the only country that I know of where you can go there with nothing, become a citizen, and end up with anything that you want. Mm -hmm. 
Other nations don't necessarily provide that. So do I want a draft? I'm not, it's not a draft necessarily that I want, but I do want people, Doc, to have some skin in the game. I want people to literally have a reason for understanding why we go to war and why we do what we do. And what I mean by that is even if it's not the military, what about the Peace Corps? What about the Job Corps? You know, the Mormons do what? A two-year stint while they go out into the mission field. Somehow or another, because we're Americans, we should be giving back to the nation on some level. Mm. So two years of service, right? That, that's not a lot to ask in my view. Do we want to call it a draft necessarily? I'm not saying only involve the military, but those folks who say, look, you know, the conscientious objector. Okay, got that. Go to the Peace Corps. Go to the Job Corps. Go teach. To Even teach. Yeah, teach. for such That's a shortage. Right. Healthcare. Sure. We need people sure. in healthcare. Yes, Behavioral health. Yes, ma'am. Okay. It's all about service, regardless of what we call it, right? You don't have to call it a draft necessarily, but but people in the in our nation should be willing to give back and serve on, in some capacity. And I love the idea of teaching. You know, teachers get such a bad rap, right? Mm, they I'm do. A former, Former university, you know, assistant university professor. Yes, yeah. Right? So so I understand that concept. But, he, you know, the first, check this out. This is crazy, right? Knowing that I couldn't read and knowing I couldn't do all those kinds of things, you know, the first thing I always wanted to be? A teacher. A teacher. <laughs> <laughs> is that crazy? No, that no. <laughs> the football thing came in later once I realized I had athletic ability. And then, you know, having athletic ability took my attention away from, you know, because I thought I was stupid. I didn't think I was very smart at all. And the, the, the conflict with that was that, Doc, it, within my inner being, right, I, I, I always thought, I'm a, I'm, I think I'm a pretty smart guy, right? I mean, the problem is that I didn't have a good foundation by which to build on. So the grades said, no, you're not very smart at all, dude. So how do you go from having, you know, barely graduating high school, all this failure to having four degrees, two masters, 17 hours toward a doctorate, graduating, you know, war college? You know, I was told I'd never be an Army officer. I was inducted into the Officer Kennedy School Hall of Fame three years ago. I mean, right? Congratulations. Yeah. So all of that stuff, man. So all of that, you know, began long ago because my life actually started out with the failure piece. And along the way, I changed that mindset to see failure as positive and good and not necessarily bad or negative. So define yourself, Colonel George George A. Milton, define yourself in one word. One word. Wow. One word. I would say I would go kind-hearted. Kind-hearted. Yes, ma'am. Let's talk about your website and your ah. book and how people can get a hold of you. Yes, the website is simply uh, www.georgeamilton.com. That's georgeamilton.com. Uh, if you want to go, uh, my, my book, uh, the book is at, at Amazon, right? So that's one mm -hmm. I'm selling it now. Uh, uh, in order, the, the book itself, Doc, I mean, when I actually did the research for the book, nobody wanted to talk about failure. No one, no one. So I said, golly, what am I going to do to get people interested? So what I decided to do is I wrote the book a workbook to accompany the book. A workbook too? Okay. I the book, the workbook, and the journal all at the same time and released them all uh, about a year or so ago at the same time. So they can get the, the, they get the book, the workbook, the journal. They can also get an, uh, an audio, uh, Kindle book as well. Also On Amazon? Took, yes, ma'am. So I also took the book 
and the workbook and combined it into one. So there's five different SKUs that they can actually get the to get this book. What better time? I mean, then, you know, we're still in the pandemic, yes, but what yes. better time? Because self-esteem, uncertainty, moving towards the future. I can't, I, yes. I mean, I hear failure, people experiencing yes. a sense of yes. failure on all levels. Yeah. What better time than to yeah. go through that book? I, wow. I agree. I'm working on my second one. It's called failures. Interesting. The, the, the failure is not the problem is a registered phrase, actually. Okay. So, and I also have a logo with the, the phrases encircled with, with the, the frowny face, right? Yeah. So, I'm, uh, uh, so the next book that I'm working on is Failure is Not the Problem, right? So the, the, the first one is Failure is Not the Problem, it's the beginning of your success. The beginning the one of I'm working success. on now is Failure is Not the Problem, it's your leadership. Love it. Yeah, so I'm working on that now. So, so yeah, we have, I mean, tons of failure right now. And, and people are experiencing that, whether it's personal or professional or relational or whatever the case may be. What I want to do with this this, this platform, and, and I have merchandise that I sell also, is literally change the mindset. I want to transform how people think. Mm -hmm. If I could take half of our planet, right, literally half of the planet, to buy into the concept to see failure is good and not bad, we could transform the world overnight. I, I totally believe that. But people have been inundated to the point to where they only can see failure in one way. And because yeah. they only see it in one way, they think there's only one outcome. But they'll say, you know, what is it? I've heard, you know, motivational speakers who have this success platform, which is great because my book is really about becoming successful through your failure. If you want to become successful, Doc, you have to walk through the doorway of failure, right? So most people will talk about success, success. Oh, you know, you're going to have some failure. So, but you know, when you have failure, just bounce back up. Well, it's just not that simple. And failure, I think, is a very real thing in life. Yes. I mean, it's realistic. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 and, and usually unexpected, you know, yes. and I think if I, I think it would be easier to prepare to transition through failure than immediately go towards the success. It's kind of like, process not perfection that, that's right you know and it's that that same saying we've heard for years it's the journey not necessarily that's the right. goal sure right sure. That, that's right but most people think that that's the goal without the journey exactly like a lot of people want to go to heaven but they don't want to die right good point yeah same, same for the deal so my yeah. thing is that guys you know most people will not ever be as successful as they hope to be but every single one of those persons is going to fail and all of us multiple times. So the issue at hand is what are you going to do with that failure? If you go out and you want to become successful and you don't attain that goal, do you just give up or do you change directions? Do you go back and get a, a certain skill? So I have to go back and get certain skills, Doc, to be able to brief ambassadors on a mm -hmm. monthly basis, to be able to go into a foreign country, to be able to coach, mentor, and train to build departments and these kind of things to get their military up to speed. I have to change a lot. Look, I am 100, 180 degrees different than what I was in terms of uh, how I speak, uh, my mannerisms, and these kinds of things, the way in which I think, right, 180. But I am still uniquely the person that I was born, right? Just a little bit more polished. <laughs> <laughs> George, I want to hug you. So what message would you like to leave to the American people, especially during these challenging days? Yes, ma'am. Look, you know, I, I know that when you look out on the world, and you see all of the people that are coming at you for, and pulling at you in all, oh gosh, from all avenues of approaches, man. 
have faith. I mean, believe in yourself. You know, if you want to become successful, here's the deal. Number one, you got to believe that you can be successful. Most people say, ah, yeah, I believe I can be successful. No, they don't. You're saying that because you think that's what you're supposed to say when people say, you know, do you want to become successful? So you really have to believe it. I had to believe that I could be an officer. There are certain things I had to do in order to become that, right? So I believed it. The second thing you have to do, you have to focus. You know, now people are saying, I've said this, for, and I'm not clairvoyant, Doc, but I'm a common sense kind of guy, right? You know, it's hard to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time sometimes. So you have to get laser-like focus. So now studies are saying that there's no such thing as multitasking. The brain doesn't work that way. You can focus on one thing. I mean, constantly focus on one thing to the point, to the degree that you need to, right? So I used to say to folks, you're not multitasking, you're just distracted, man. So mm. you have to believe. You have to focus. You have to really work hard. Denzel Washington said this in the speech I heard him say. He says, that, you know what? Um, when it comes to becoming successful, your faith, your faith is really important, no matter what faith it is, right? It's really, really important. If it's not, it should be, because that's a part of who you are. Hmm. So faith is important. He says, luck on your way to success is important also. So if you get lucky, then great. Some people call that God's blessings or whatever. Sometimes it's just luck. Sometimes God ain't got anything to do with it. What is depending on what you're doing, right? So you have to believe. You have to work hard, right? You have to focus. So the fourth thing you have to do, and this is hard for some people, whether it's the belief system, whether it's the laser light focus, whether it's the luck, faith, which says you still got to do the work, even if you have perfect faith and the best of luck. The fourth thing you got to do is you got to fail, dog. You got to fail. It's in the failure where the success begins to germinate, right? because at that point you have the option of either quitting or continuing or changing or embracing or learning or understanding what failure has in store for you. Amazing. Colonel George A. Milton. Amazing. What a privilege. You have earned the right to the nth degree to influence the lives of others, and you are a gift. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Very, very humble. I really appreciate the, just the time to be able to get this message out, Doc. You know, you got a lot of people hurting today, man. A lot of folks Absolutely. are depressed. A lot yeah. of folks are depressed, and, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, are under the impression that no matter what, man, with all the failure in their lives, they'll never be of value. They'll never mm -hmm. be worth anything, and that's just not true, right? Yeah. It's just people have true. to be acknowledged. They have to be yes. valued. People yes. have value. Yes. yes, they do. Everybody has value. Every, look, if you are still alive today, America, right, you have value. If you are still alive today, there's a purpose for your being here. I totally believe that. Regardless of how short mm -hmm. or long your life is, there's a purpose for you. You know, the Japanese call it finding your ikigai. Ikigai? Right? Ikigai, right. Huh, ikigai. It's, yeah, it's simply your purpose, hmm. right? I was reading something and it said that, you know, uh, you know, Japanese are one of those, those countries where there's a lot of centenarians, right? And, you know, yeah. they were studying these folks and they're trying to figure out what's actually going on with these people. And, and how do you guys get to that, that age? And someone, you know, along the way here, some, some of them said that, you know what? It's all about our ikigai. Your ikigai? Well, what the heck is that? It's all about a purpose in life. And when you find that, Right? As I did in the Army, right? My purpose 
up until I got into the army, was preparing me to be in the army, doc. And I never even realized that until I got in the army, doc. And now that purpose has developed into what? What we're talking about today. Thank you so much, Colonel Milton. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Sullivan. Godspeed. And I hope we meet again. Oh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Let me give you my email address real quick. I gave you the, uh, the website. But if anybody wants to contact me, they can contact me at george at georgeamilton.com. George, george at georgeamilton.com. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. See you soon, Colonel. Thank you, Doc. You take care. All the best to you. Godspeed. You too. Thank you. This is Dr. Jody J. DeLuca signing off. Take good care, America. Thank you for listening to Inside America's Minds. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Inside America's Minds with Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. The views, information, and opinions expressed on the Inside America's Minds podcast series and on any other related social media pages are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any third party. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking treatment because of something you have heard on Inside America's Minds or have read on any other related social media pages. For emergency situations, be sure to call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.